It is a privilege to add my welcome to you to that of uh, our alumni president, Brent Stanier. We indeed wish that you could fill up this sanctuary here today and that we could all be together. We're glad, though, that the lure of the place has drawn you back. We know that you have, oh, say, a million online options this Sabbath morning. Uh, we're really missing something else. We're missing this platform being full of student musicians. And standing here in this sanctuary, absent that crowd on alumni Sabbath morning is, is a deep and painful experience. And we look toward the future with hope. They hear the charge echoing across the pavement of Pilate's colonnaded judgment hall, the king of the Jews. It sparks a caustic brew of emotions in the minds of these soldiers. They are the governor's soldiers, Pilate's soldiers, but they are not seasoned, disciplined troops from Rome. They are auxiliary troops, recruited from the non-Jewish inhabitants of the Roman province of Judea. They possess a deep-seated native racism, an anti-Semitic hatred for all things Jewish. So when this strange would-be Jewish king is remanded to their custody, they see an opportunity for some good soldierly fun. They can let off a little steam, give a phony king his comeuppance, and act out their utter disdain for the Jews. It is no wonder, then, that the soldiers parade Jesus into the governor's headquarters, into the praetorium. There in the courtyard, they can conduct their racist sport away from prying eyes. There, they gather the whole cohort, 600 soldiers if the group is at full strength. They gather the whole cohort around this prisoner. The ringleader quickly organizes the event. Sending some fellow soldiers scurrying for a few simple props, he leads another group in ceremoniously undressing the king. Already, they are entering into the drama, the theater of the moment. Having stripped the prisoner, the soldiers seat him with feigned pomp on a throne, a rough chair someone finds in a dark corner. One of the soldiers contributes his worn red soldier's cape. It is not a true royal robe, the gorgeous, expensive purple robe of the emperor or the, of the real king of the Jews, Roman client King Herod Agrippa I. It is a cheap, rustic imitation of the real thing. With some pageantry, two or three of the soldiers wrap the robe around the recently flogged and bloodied prisoner, investing the king. The rest of the crowd of soldiers 
begin to catch the cadence of these proceedings, adding their cheering, jeering voices to the mockery. To have a proper coronation requires not only a robe, but it also requires a crown and a scepter. And fortunately, the ringleader's helpers show up at just the right moment with the necessary trappings of royalty. They have hastily woven a wreath-like crown out of a couple of branches from a thorn bush, acting in his central role in this mock coronation the ringleader raises that crown of thorns above the prisoner's head and overplaying his part, crashes it down upon the prisoner, spreading his arms now in mock adulation to his fellow soldiers. He invites them to join him in acknowledging this new king, which they do in raucous volume, their jeers amplified off the stony courtyard. Then comes the specter of the scepter, the final symbol of royal power, a plain old stick thrust into the right hand of this foe king of the Jews, a phony robe, A phony crown, a phony scepter, appropriate paraphernalia, you see, for a phony king. The king has been invested in his royal robe. The king has been crowned with his royal crown. The king has been authorized to exercise power by placing the royal scepter in his right hand. The time has come in this hastily organized coronation ceremony for the next two significant steps. Homage must be paid to the new king by his new kneeling subjects and acclamation must be offered to him acknowledging his new power and authority. So the soldiers hastily clear a large space around the prisoner so that all may see these steps in the coronation ceremony. And then the ringleader points here and there among his fellow soldiers, selecting a few life-of-the-party types to act out this next stage, and they move forward toward the prisoner, attempting to outdo one another in offering their obeisance, kneeling, prostrating themselves before the newly crowned king, they offer their mocking worship. And then, mimicking the cry offered to the emperor, Hail Caesar! They intone, Hail King of the Jews! The soldiers have suppressed their savagery in order to lend gravitas to this feigned coronation. Now, though, the proceedings turn violent. Those prostrate soldiers rise, grab the stick as scepter from Jesus' right hand, and bring it crashing down repeatedly on that crown of thorns on his head, and standing imperiously over him, they spit upon that crown. They spit upon that head. Members of the cohort now gather round to join in this brutality, striking and spitting, striking and spitting. Their spittle blends with his blood, running down his face and off his beard. 
when the violence subsides, and when their mockery is complete. The soldiers strip the prisoner once more, divesting him of the worn soldier's cape. They replace his own already bloodied robe. They stand him up and they lead him out of the governor's praetorium. The brief, bloody story ends with these words. They led him away to be crucified. This is a story of Roman soldiers mocking and abusing a would-be king, a story of utter shame and humiliation, a mock coronation, the account of a degradation ceremony, as the sociologists would label it. Matthew means us to read and understand the story that way, but not only that way. He has a deeper story, a more resonant narrative in view, a story he has carefully, skillfully encoded using the rhetorical strategy of irony. What is irony? To decode Matthew's story, we must awaken to his use of dramatic irony. Dramatic or story irony occurs when characters within the story act and speak in ways they do not understand or at least do not fully understand. They personify truths of which they know nothing. The readers, on the other hand, trained by the author of the story, know more than the characters acting out within it. Matthew's attentive readers can crack his code. Matthew's ironic, coded story harbors the secret of Christian faith. His story echoes not just Pilate's pavement a couple of days before the resurrection of Jesus, but unimaginable jubilation following it. In the midst of the grimy violence of this pre-Easter story, Matthew plants the bright, victorious flag of a grand post-Easter event. He writes the story to share the convictions that energize believers in Jesus, that give their lives meaning in good times and bad. Matthew means for his readers to be able to decode this other story and he trains them to do so. To crack his code, we hearers of his story must attend to four clues. Clue number one, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, if you have your Bibles close at hand, turn with me to the beginning of Matthew's story, the first chapters of his gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, his first words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. From the get-go, Jesus is the son of David, the son of the greatest of all the kings of Israel. And you'll remember that kingship is hereditary. For Matthew, Jesus is not just a king of the Jews, but the king of the Jews. Jesus is the new David. And then comes Matthew chapter 2. 
And you'll remember that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Astrologers from the east wander the streets of Jerusalem asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Herod the Great, who likes to think of himself as the real king of the Jews, is rattled by the astrologer's question. Jesus is the king of the Jews, the new David. And echoes of his royal identity rumble through Matthew's gospel. We readers cannot miss the clue. Jesus is indeed and in fact the king of the Jews. Just before our story, Pilate quizzes Jesus. Chapter 27, verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? We readers know the answer. We are not surprised at all by the titleless, the condemnation label placed over the head, over his head on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. We know Matthew's code. Clue number two. Jesus, though, is not only the king of the Jews. Jesus is far more than the king of the Jews. He is not destined to rule over part of a poor, distant, peripheral, and troublesome Roman province. His destined rule and domain are far more expansive than that. By the time Matthew's readers come to our story, they have experienced three powerful statements about the domain and authority of Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus announces, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Matthew 26, verse 53, in the garden, Jesus confronts the sword-wielding Peter with this question. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? The cohort gathered around Jesus consists of 600 Roman soldiers, one-tenth of a single legion of 6,000 soldiers. Jesus can request, he says, Immediate deployment of 12 legions, 72,000, not legions of Roman soldiers, mind you, legions of angels. Most important of all is Matthew 26, verses 63 to 64. Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. He remains silent before them. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell me if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. An astonishing statement borrowed, its imagery borrowed from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man going to the Father 
serving as the co-regent of the cosmos, and you will see him coming from the Father. Matthew gives us the tools to break his code. Jesus is far more than the king of the Jews. Clue number three. The emperor, as it turns out, does have clothes. Matthew assumes his readers already know this clue based on shared cultural understanding. The Roman emperor, of course, needs to be ready to act and look his imperial part. So within the emperor's household at the time Matthew composes his gospel is an organization called the thesaurus, the storehouse. In this case, not a storehouse for words, but a storehouse for clothes. It is overseen by managers of some standing who supervise the manufacture, care, storage, and cleaning of the complex ceremonial togas along with their purple sashes that indicate the emperor's unique rank. The thesaurus boasts another set of employees as well the cubicularii, the valets of the emperor, who are responsible for doting over him and dressing him for formal occasions. The emperor does indeed have clothes and valets, as do all the vassal kings who mimic him. Clue number four, kings are anointed. Ancient coronary coronation ceremonies were highly ritualized events that included distinct and important steps as we have seen. A king is invested in royal robes. He must be crowned. Then a king is authorized to rule by placing in his right hand the golden jewel-encrusted scepter. Next, the new king is adored. Participants bow low in obeisance, homage, and worship. And the king is acclaimed. His new official title is announced in honorific tones. In the Old Testament, especially in the coronation story of Joash, we find a final culminating step for a king of the Jews. The king is anointed with oil, symbolizing the divine origin of his status and authority. You will recall that both the Hebrew term Messiah and the Greek one Christ or the Christ mean the anointed one, and Matthew has called Jesus Christ or the Christ 16 times in his gospel. Invested, crowned, authorized, adored, acclaimed, and anointed. These then are Matthew's four clues. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is far more than the king of the Jews. The emperor does have clothes, and kings are anointed. And now you are prepared. You are ready to hear Matthew's second story. They hear the charge echoing across the pavement of Pilate's colonnaded judgment hall. The king 
of the Jew. Enacting a faux coronation, mocking a phony king, they have no idea of the real storyline, not a clue that they themselves are about to prefigure a cosmic scale story. The whole cohort of soldiers, 600 strong on a good day, gather to him, upon him, signaling the beginning of the drama. They gather not so much as a large, rowdy group of soldiers castigating a prisoner, but as subjects of an about-to-be-crowned king. They could never have imagined that some will read their actions through the lens of a psalm, Psalm 22 written generations before, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wider their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They could not grasp that this humiliated, abused prisoner had himself prophesied these very scenes. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked. Matthew chapter 20. Thinking to move the proceedings along, a group of soldiers step forward and remove the prisoner's bloody robe, unknowingly playing the role of imperial valets serving their emperor. Seating the prisoner in a rough chair, they begin to pick up on the sense of ceremony, hushing the throng of soldiers, continuing their role as royal valets with feigned reverence. They invest the king, wrapping a soldier's worn red cape around the forlorn seated prisoner. They have not a clue that readers of this story in future decades will see in their actions a prophetic enactment of a far different, far more exalted story. They think they are conducting a degradation ceremony for a despised prisoner, escorting him on his path to shame and oblivion with appropriate jesting and mockery. They have no inkling that some will see in this frayed robe a symbol of the investiture, the exaltation of this Jesus as co-regent with the Father in the courts of heaven. They do not imagine that that hastily woven crown of thorns signifies anything but torture and disgrace. How could this crown on this head symbolize the royal status of unbounded authority over everything? And what of that crude scepter forced into the prisoner's right hand? How could it symbolize his exaltation over every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? They could never have grasped that some will watch them kneel before this Jesus, this King of the Jews. Some will hear their feigned homage, Hail, King of the Jews, and see and hear a prophecy of the universal adoration and acclamation of the throngs of the heavenly host, the armies of heaven. 
They could never understand that some will hear echoed the euphonious cry, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It is beyond them to hear in this moment the psalmist's announcement by Yahweh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. And when their actions turn from parody and mockery to violence, they feel only the strange flush and rush of passions unhinged and abuse unleashed as they beat him with that scepter-like stick and spit on his sacred head. It is totally outside their frame of reference to think that some trained by author Matthew will see in their actions the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53. Or that future believers might see in the mixture of spittle and blood dripping off his beard an announcement of his anointing as King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, Matthew's other story is the story of the coronation, the exaltation of Jesus in the courts of heaven following on his resurrection from the dead. Yes, this is a story about mockery and abuse and spitting, but it is also this story. The king of kings is invested, crowned, authorized, adored, acclaimed, and anointed. It is Matthew's story of the exaltation of Jesus. Matthew draws his two stories together at the cross. The members of that cohort who mock Jesus are also the ones who lead him away to be crucified. They are the ones who cast lots for his garments. They hear him cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he dies, they watch the upheaval of nature and notice what happens to those rough, mocking soldiers. Matthew 27, verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Remember, kingship is hereditary. Truly, this was the royal son of God. This is no phony king. He's the real deal. He's not just an earthly king. He is or was the royal son of God. And watch how Matthew ends his gospel. In the tale of the soldier's mockery, Matthew has already told the story of Christ's exaltation. He need not repeat it in the conclusion to his gospel, but he does evoke it. Jesus himself 
announces his exaltation, his coronation. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus came to them, the eleven disciples, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You see, this is not just about how to read five verses in Matthew's gospel. It's about how to read the news. For I would suggest to you this Sabbath morning that there are always two stories at work. On the surface, it may be a story of a terrifying tornado on Easter Sunday or a vast, hunger-producing locust plague. It may be a tale about a horrific, death-dealing plague named COVID-19. However, between the lines and behind the scenes, another story is in play. That deeper, more resonant narrative forgets the death of not one victim. It treasures the tears and measures the pain. It ignores nothing, but it supersedes everything. It is a post-Easter story that begins in the echo chamber of an empty tomb. It looks upward, tracing the trajectory of the risen, ascended, exalted Jesus. It exalts in Jesus' declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew's double story presents the great challenge of Christian discipleship to perceive in every headline and in every story of our lives the narrative of the risen, ascended, and exalted Jesus, and then to figure out how to live into that story. May God empower us as members of the Walla Walla University Seventh-day Adventist Church and as alumni of Walla Walla University to do just that. Amen and amen.